Good evening. Do you believe in ghosts? It's alive. It's alive. It's alive. It's alive. What is the secret? Dwayne is hiding in the basket. What's in the basket? Easter eggs? She's made a repeated request that the kids see a psychiatrist. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Sleezoids, the podcast where we go down the rabbit hole of 20th century genre fare from the most influential canon classics to the trashiest exploitation films we can get our hands on and invite you to tag along in helping us create a canon of sleaze. Each week is a double feature grindhouse style where we discuss two films loosely related by subject, genre, actor, filmmaker, or franchise. At the end of each episode, along with our honorary Sleezoids, which you can become by subscribing on Patreon, Michael Myers is returning to Haddonfield. Join the sleaze. We just... <laughs> decide on all the official ratings and rankings for every film that we cover patreon subscribers also get an on-air shout out in two bonus episodes every single month which we have been doing for we are approaching three years which is insane there are something like 60 plus bonus episodes waiting for you guys at least as well as our bonus transmission series which we have almost 20 of now where we talk about uh new release genre films which believe it or not they are still coming out and i think uh, (laughs) they're trying i think that I think this week we're going to have one that's all spooktober and Halloween themed. We're going to do a horror bonus transmission because we're going to talk about like uh, Cronenberg Jr.'s Possessor film. Can't wait. Uh, There's there's a couple others that we want to talk about. We're going to talk about that what looks like a terrible new Clive Barker adaptation from Hulu or something. Things are coming out. Beautiful. So we're going to be talking about that as well. And uh, we've also been doing some uh, screenings, virtual screenings with Jamie and I. Those are uh, fun. Live. Uh, and uh, we've had a couple people sign up for them. And uh, I think we just did the free one for everyone listening to this, I think, like last week. And uh, we did right. we did Blood Rage. But coming up uh, this coming Wednesday after you guys are when, from when you guys are listening to this, we're going to be doing Lucio Fulci's The New York Ripper for $10 patrons. So if you have any interest in that, again, patreon.com slash podcast for all those bonus episodes and virtual screenings. We're doing all kinds of stuff, especially this month, Spooktober. Yeah. Well, because this is what? This is the third episode of Spooktober, I think. We or love fourth? the spooky times. I'm, I'm losing track. I think it's actually the fourth episode of this Spooktober because we got five episodes this year. Oh, yeah. Five Saturdays. Uh, but but uh, speaking of which, I do have a lot of patrons to thank this week. Um, so I'm going to start going through those now. We have um, Vinicius Guamares, uh, Nick Ferguson, Lee Engelstad, Mark Dodson. Uh, at the $10 level we have alex acton jones friend of the show uh we have oliver ryan bose we have uh sean armitage matthew moore max lopez christian kirk cameron chris lumpkin and ben cloverfield lane (laughs) beautiful well, thank you, guys. That's okay. awesome. That's everyone. So th- that's a that's a lot of people. Thanks so much, guys, for signing up. Hope you guys are enjoying all those bonus episodes. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, 
that's the one plug for the week. Uh, the other plug, as always, is Apple Podcasts. If you guys are listening on Apple Podcasts, and I know that you are, I see the stats. While you're listening to this right now, scroll all the way down to the bottom and give us a good old rating and review there at the bottom. It helps us climb the ranks over at iTunes and helps us find new listeners, and we appreciate that as well. But that being said, welcome to another week. Welcome. I'm your host, Josh Lewis, and joining me, as always, is my co-host... Jamie Miller. Welcome back, guys. Welcome back. I think two weeks ago would have been the last time you guys, free listeners, would have heard from us, and we would have been doing our first free episode of Spooktober, where we had special guest Will Meneker of the Chapo Trap House podcast on to talk about sequels to Good sequels. canon classic horror films that are way better than they have any right to be. <laughs> oh, yeah. And we talked Richard Franklin's Psycho 2 from 1983, which was surprisingly sort of sad and tender. And we yeah. talked about Exorcist 3, which is also really sad, but not at all tender. Really not tender. terrifying. Yeah, just horrifying <laughs> the whole time. <laughs> but we had a really good time talking about both of those films uh, with Will, and uh, Will made the case for Exorcist 3 as uh, even better than the original, which I don't think Jamie and I were quite there on. No. But holy but still, crap, is it's it, so good. It, it is quite a film. Yeah. Uh, George Especially C. Scott for, and Brad um, is just someone, a monster someone not known for film for uh, being a director um, yeah. having the novelist William Peter Blatty himself take over for directing on that one. He only did like um, two films. I think that one and the ninth configuration or something like that. So pretty yeah. crazy. So again, if you want that episode, that was uh, two weeks ago on any podcast listener of choice. Uh, but last week, for the patrons exclusively, we did the one Spooktober episode of the year that is always reserved for Italian horror, because no one does it quite like they do it. Um, and we talked about Lucio Fulci's Zombie, or Zombie 2, as it was marketed in Italy as this sort of uh, cynical campaign to make it seem like it was a sequel to dawn of the dead which was titled zombie in italy uh but it's not at all related but it is fulci god fulci doing a zombie film and it's as graphic and as strange and surreal as you would expect of lucio fulci doing a quasi zombie film and i do also love the the other alternate title the zombie flesh eaters it's just uh that's metal that's very awesome <laughs> and uh, we paired that with Cemetery Man from 1994 by uh, Michael Suave, um, who we talked about previously. He did uh, Stage Fright Aquarius, which is one of these yeah. sort of like stranger Italian slasher films. And he was kind of keeping like the uh, strange Italian horror movie alive after it was kind of like already on its deathbed. He was making these films in the late eighties and uh, all the way up until the mid nineties cemetery man in a lot of ways is considered sort of like the last really, really great Italian film, uh, horror film in the vein that we kind of understand it from the mid seventies onward from the Argentos and the Bavas and full cheese, et cetera. Yeah. A very strange film and, and also not and afraid to be funny. Wild. Yeah. It's just, it's, it, it takes a, a lot of different tones and, and dives into a lot of different, uh, themes and, and genres really. So yeah, it's great. Yeah. It's, 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 it's very creepy and nihilistic, but also very absurd and kind of cartoony in certain elements. And it involves yeah. romantic necrophilia, which is always something on this show that <laughs> for some reason, somehow we have up. talked about that twice. Yeah. This <laughs> keeps coming on to the show. <laughs> so again, if you want that, that episode, that was last week's episode, um, patreon.com slash podcast. But this week we have a very special guest joining us. Um, 
and I will let him obviously in- introduce the films, but we have film critic and film programmer uh, Angelo Moretta. Angelo, how you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for coming on. Angelo, now you have some crazy ones for us this week, and I knew immediately <laughs> when you picked them that these were going to be amazing. I had seen one, but I hadn't seen the other one yet. But what two films did you bring on with you this week, and why do they pair together? My two films are Alfred Soule's incredible and strange American Jallo, uh, Alice Sweet Alice, and Frank Henenlotter's Basket Case, which struggle to think of a description for it. It's like a <laughs> sleazy but kind of sweet Freudian psychodrama. Yes. And yeah. they kind of pair in my mind as these like brothers keeper horror melodramas about having having a sibling for whom you are responsible or perhaps who you put at risk. Uh, so there are these kind of sibling psychodramas against the background of urban decay in both of them and mm-hmm. all sorts of weird quasi-Catholic beliefs and guilt and anxiety about sexual awakening and being bad. So sibling melodramas, doing bad, feeling bad about it. That's my, <laughs> that's my double bill. <laughs> it's perfect. It's perfect. Beautiful. Um, yeah, well, I, I knew that we were going to have Angelo on here for, for a long time because he, he does a lot of awesome film criticism, but he also did a, you, you programmed a series called the the No Future series where you did all kinds of sort of like uh, kid-based horror films, and I, was, I, I can't remember which one I was able to catch. I was only ever able to catch one in Toronto, but that was one hell of a series, and you liked putting people through the ringer, especially <laughs> when it comes to kids and now it looks like siblings as well. <laughs> yeah, and I, I did program Alice Sweet Alice as well. Basket Case never made it, although I think if pandemic times were not upon us, Basket Case would probably be in the mix at some point. Although they're a little bit older, I sort of stretched the definition of kids a little bit. I think the oldest kid I ever programmed in that series was uh, Bob Clark's Death Dream, where we have a returning war yes. veteran who's kind of an eternal child in his parents' mind, even though, even though he's sort of this undead late 20 something but yeah it was a, a a genre series about bad seeds basically so uncanny children misunderstood children mm-hmm. looking at children as like vectors for parents anxieties about the future about like their own failures whether they're genetic failures or behavioral failures like maybe they did something bad in the past that is being revisited upon them in the form of their bad kid yeah. Uh, well, and you, you did a lot of stuff that we've actually ended up covering on the show. We you uh, you did like um, uh, it's alive, which is something that we covered on the show. I think you did next of kin as well. Did, yeah. Um, which was the Australian one that we paired with the shining, which was like obviously a lot of fun. Um, so that was a very cool series, and we just did the brood recently too, which I think you did as yeah. well. Yeah. Yeah, that was my opening opening selection. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, oh, and I think you also did "Don't Look Now," which I think would would have paired honestly really well with something like "Alice, Sweet Alice." Yeah, and is certainly an inspiration for it. I think. I mean, there are all sorts of inspirations for it in terms of design. I think, but I think "Don't Look Now" is really in the DNA of this movie in a way that some of the others maybe aren't. For sure. Um, that being said, I think that's a good segue. I think we are going to jump into uh, tackling these ones chronologically. We are going to start with Alice Sweet Alice. It's too late to save her. Oh, help me! 
of unnatural love and unnatural death. Brooke Shields in Holy Terror. It's too late for prayers. All right, we are talking Alice, Sweet Alice. Oh, and, and Jamie, you're going to love this. Also known as <laughs> Communion. Also known as, yes. <laughs> very briefly, Holy Terror uh, in a theatrical re-release that happened like five years after it actually came out. But uh, it is a 1976 American horror, uh, sort of credited a little bit as a slasher film here, but kind of... Um, coming out obviously it predates halloween and it came out um just after texas chainsaw and just after uh bava's a bay of blood which is kind of considered sort of like the the prototypical slasher as we know it and this is definitely not a bunch of teens getting killed uh by a masked killer but there is a masked killer and they definitely have a uh, giant uh kitchen knife and they are stabbing people with it. So I guess I'll give them credit on that one. Uh, but the film is co-written and directed by one Alfred Soul, a um, sort of uh, architect and uh, former Catholic. Uh, I, I want to stress former um, <laughs> in his hometown of Patterson, New Jersey, um, where he was actually excommunicated from his local church for a film, uh, for his directorial debut, which from what I understand was some sort of quasi porno film that he ended <laughs> up shooting in like the local Bishop's house. Yeah. The, the and, Catholics uh, aren't going to take too kindly to that one. I don't think. <laughs> No, and basic, but really, basically, he just wanted to be a filmmaker, and he saw, you know, like a lot of these filmmakers who were getting really big in the seventies. They their first gigs before they, they, you know, they got the money to make an independent film was, you know, them doing like some sort of like for hire adult film, so that you know they right. could get some experience behind the camera and they could get some training on it because he had no idea how to even like work cameras. Um, so that was how he got started, and because he did this little underground. Uh, adult film in his own community using members of the church and using some of their properties because again he was an architect restoring a lot of uh, historic buildings in New Jersey which is where you'll get obviously some of the amazing location work that we see in Alice Sweet Alice but he was basically excommunicated from his church for making the adult film they were very upset with him and thus communion or Alice Sweet Alice was born uh many of the characters based on local people in his sort of like italian roman catholic church community that he was a part of okay yeah and uh very loosely it is about a young girl named alice um who uh is a 12 year old girl and has a young younger sister uh karen who is uh, pretty viciously murdered at her first communion. And we'll get into the exact uh, scene of that, you know, a little bit later as we start breaking into it. But um, basically, everyone sort of suspects that the weird Alice is perhaps responsible for doing it. And the rest of the film is sort of like a quasi mystery giallo style film yeah. about finding out what exactly has um what, what exactly happened to karen who's responsible for it 
And it actually reminded me a lot of, um, cause Angelo mentioned that don't look now, um, was huge. The filmmaker himself has cited it as huge inspiration for the film, but what it actually ended up reminding me of the most was, um, Fulci's don't torture a duckling. Oh, interesting. Which I don't know if you've seen Angelo, but it is a movie about the church's fetishization of innocence and purity, which results in a bunch of children murder and the manhunt for this killer who is basically hell-bent on preserving the kids before they grow up in sin. Um, And a lot of this movie is, I guess... For me, it's just so intensely stylized and it has very strangely calibrated performances that are very clearly dubbed. So this feels like, honestly, the most sort of like Italian (laughs) Catholic guilt giallo that came out of fucking nowhere, New Jersey. (laughs) (laughs) And also sort of like the religious severity of it, too. Like like every character is like judging another character. Right, absolutely. Or they're they're, they're feeling guilty about some sort of thing that is considered like a a sin. There's also, in all of these houses, there's a lot of religious iconography. Like everyone has crosses. Everyone has rosaries. And and Alice is constantly... And Alice is constantly (laughs) like... There's a scene right at the beginning where she... Uh, I think it's where she meets the maid, actually, where she starts walking and just kind of noticing all of this, this like iconography. And some of it's, you know, kind of more on the the beautiful side. But then there's also, of course, that comes with Catholicism, the the kind of uh, the violence and tragedy that comes from, you know, the whole Jesus crucifixion and all that kind of stuff and the guilt. And um, I do like that you, you have a lot of scenes of like Alice kind of just wandering and looking at all of the, the symbolism and stuff like that. Yeah, and even the symbolism, a lot of it, it, it sort of straddles the line between kind of traditional horror stuff, like obviously the big knife and like shattered glass, but also like domesticity. I'm thinking of the image of Alice standing in broken glass from her spilled milk in the way that that's like an intensely evocative, strange horror image but is also like the most banal domestic image that also speaks to sort of like being in cramped space and like not right. being able to navigate it better for sure and 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 what's interesting too is that for for alfred soul who this was you know um te- i guess te- technically this would be sort of like his his feature um you know actual distributed debut but this was his sophomore film um, this is just really, really impressively like atmospheric and strange and kind of like put together. Even even the score has this sort of like la 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 like twinkling yeah. to it, and he, he he finds every single way to you know show these what are to him natural spaces in his community. Um, which are, you know, sort of like there's a lot of location work just in New Jersey. Like when we get into the grimier stuff, there's like abandoned factories and, and, and things like that. But a lot of the, uh, there, there are some rundown apartments and stuff as well, but like a lot of the other, um, imagery of that shot inside houses, like in the priest's house and in the actual sure. churches and stuff. It's, yeah. it's very pristine and kind of waspy looking, very but true. you still carry with it this kind of this, I, this sort of this feeling of something gross and filthy is inside this place. And then also that something sort of, some sort of impending doom is coming. There is like this sort of like portent uh, feeling to it a little bit. And then you start getting introduced to some of the imagery, like the yellow raincoat and this really creepy translucent mask that the, the killer wears every time that they decide to kill. And it's very similar to what the two girls wear, which is why everyone immediately suspects um, Alice of being 
um, the murderer of Karen, but like Karen's death scene, for example, is like this really, really moody sequence of a first communion. And it just very carefully observes sort of like the, the strangeness of the ritual itself of all these very tiny girls dressed up in these like, uh, very pretty dresses and everyone is so excited to watch them go and have, you know, the priest like shove a cracker into their mouth. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and there, there's, there's like this sort of like off kilter vibe to it. And then Karen gets, uh, basically like beaten and the person with the yellow raincoat and the mask is like dragging this little girl, uh, bloody, like across the floor cut to shots of the actual communion itself kind of like taking place. And there's, there's a lot of sort of like cross cutting and a lot of sort of like, um, sort of just confusion and fear around these sort of like religious symbols, which it then sort of explores that the killer is actually religiously motivated with those sort of like strains, strange, um, fetishes and impulses towards like suffering that that catholics have we've talked about it on the Mm. show before but jamie and i both went to catholic school and that was definitely my vibe uh (laughs) in religion class which was mandatory yeah yeah it's definitely (laughs) it's not very uh free it's not a free spirited environment we'll definitely say that um something i also there's also something to oh sorry Oh, I was real quick. Uh, I was gonna say right before the uh, the, the first uh, murder scene with uh, with Karen, um, we have that scene where where Alice is kind of running into that. I don't know if it's like an abandoned building or kind of this old uh, looking building, and she runs in and 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 Brooke. Uh, I call her Brooke. Be- uh, sorry, because it's Brooke Shields, but uh, uh, Karen follows. <laughs> uh, Karen follows her, and uh, and she has a mask on, and she reveals. A, a mask that is underneath her like transparent mask and there's there's something yeah. very jarring and off-putting about just that that one shot because you know when you expect the little girl to take off the mask you expect to just see the little girl's innocent face and instead you see this like old lady mask and it gives you this very like kind of almost distrust for uh, for Alice, which I think obviously the director's trying to do at first on Alice purpose. is Greek cre- uh, guilty of being creepy and bratty. That's yeah, for sure. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so then it, I, I like that he kind of initially gives her a bit of a creepy factor because then once the murder mystery aspect of this movie starts, it, it does obviously you, it, it, it seems pretty obvious to me that it's not Alice, but I do like the way that they kind of slowly unveil things like the way that they first have Alice be creepy. And then there's stuff like the aunt who is like super controlling. And there's this, uh, this great shot where she grabs the knife and then like, I don't know if it's thunder that hits or there's some type of score that pops up and, and it kind of just makes you think, Oh, maybe she's the killer. And they do a lot of, of that throughout the, throughout the movie. Um, and they also, and we'll get to it, but they don't really focus on who the killer is, at least in the sense of her character, at least until she is on the screen and, and doing things. But since she's such a minimal part for most of the movie, I really wasn't thinking about that character for most of it. And so when the yeah. unveiling happens, I, I was kind of like, oh, that's, that's, that's pretty well done. It's like a real gothic kick to it, right? Where you're looking at a lot of these like pristine 
domestic surf. I mean, they're not pristine, but they're surfaces that people are trying to make pristine by cleaning them all the time. And then underneath <laughs> these sort of ugly things that are festering underneath. Like when I, when I watch this movie, I think of, it's going to sound strange, but Alice Monroe and like the Southern, Southern Gothic short stories about like people endlessly scrubbing kitchen linoleum while also harboring these intensely ugly dark thoughts beneath it. Yeah. I think that's kind of the tension that's working here where you've got like people doing their best to deny their base impulses, but there's that kind of like hairy, sweaty ugliness underneath it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I get that a lot. And, and I, I think that that really translates also to um, sort of like, you know, the, the, where the first communion scene starts off really pretty and pristine. And by the end of it, Oh my God, there's a little girl on fire in inside a bench and everyone inside the church, it goes like full hysteria. They're wailing and crying and screaming and And I love the like stomping on each other. The like close up zooms of like uh, older middle-aged women's faces, just like screaming into the camera and stuff. Like it just, there's such a hysteria to it. Yeah. Like an absolute One of the nuns falls, I believe. Yes. And and people start like stepping on her and stuff like that. It's it's like a total frenzy of just like panic and despair. And the smoke is filling the room and the smoke we know is from, you know, like a little girl's body. body. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, 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 it's really, I guess, I mean, like if, if he wasn't already excommunicado from his, he would be (laughs) 100%. Yeah. Yeah. There's something so evocative, too, about, like, what Alice is doing in that moment, right? Like, while the pandemonium is happening, Alice is, like, at her most Catholic, paradoxically, right? Like, Alice is waiting for the ritual to be completed. She's sort of like Charlie Brown with the football endlessly being moved away. Her tongue (laughs) is outstretched and yearning. And that's the thing that she's upset about, right? When when everyone else is figuring out that her sister has been murdered, it's like, the priest wouldn't give me the communion and so like it's this weird (laughs) sincere moment on her part to like be a part of a community as the community is falling falling apart around her yeah no for for sure that that sequence is is so insane and then after that the movie really becomes um it it it, it translates a a little bit to alice and karen's father who is uh catherine the mother's ex-husband named dominic he shows up in town and he starts an independent investigation into kind of what happened because he doesn't believe that alice is the killer but he's really the only one him and catherine him the basically alice's parents don't think that she's the killer that's basically it everyone else thinks she's the killer including alice's aunt who uh (laughs) is uh ha- having having some good times uh w- with <laughs> Alice. But to be fair, Alice is pretty bratty and Alice is pretty uh hysterical. She likes to uh just fuck with the landlord who is <laughs> yeah. like this really creepy large man who by the way, I want to say uh I, I I have to look it up again, but I remember there was something in the behind the scenes I saw on the Arrow Blu-ray that's out there of Alice Sweet Alice where Alfred Soul talked about casting this man and I think it was because he saw him at a cemetery where he was dressed up as a priest and people were tipping him to, you know, you know, recite prayers over um, their loved one's graves at the cemetery. But he found out that this guy actually wasn't a priest at all. He was just a hustler and he bought like a Halloween priest outfit and he basically just made money by grifting people into thinking that he was like the, the priest at the cemetery who would give prayers. Well, wow, that's a perfect really casting actually, for this kind of movie. <laughs> yeah. So, so really he was actually just a bouncer at a bar 
that was his thing. And so he just met him in New Jersey at the cemetery and was like, you know what? I'm going to put you in a movie one day. So he got the role of weird, creepy landlord who has a lot of tiny kittens that he likes to uh, hang out with. He also has some goldfish, but he basically just sits around, listens to classical music, sweats a lot, waves himself <laughs> with a fan, and eventually tries to molest Alice. Yeah, Turns out because to because not be Alice awesome. is uh, trying to just like mess with him in various ways. Basically, just play pranks on him. Yeah, yeah, like uh, cockroaches. What, at one point near the end, she puts the cockroaches on him, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. just She's standard little kid stuff, yeah. Yeah, but... Um, but not nice. So Alice, Alice's home life is really, really messed up because basically, you know, she her, her parents are trying to make her like this perfect Catholic little child, but she actually suffers from a lot of the, you know other people in the family like the aunt there the the aunt like threatens to like hit her there is a little bit of an abusive thing happening there and then there's also this relationship that she has with the landlord and with sort of like the the filthier aspects of the community that she's actually a part of and also that alice just likes to mess with people in general so there there's just there's just this weird interesting thing i, I think it speaks to what angela was talking about that there are people trying very very hard to put on you know sort of like this image of being proper and clean and uh very catholic uh but almost everything actually in their community is is much seedier and much grosser and this does feel like the movie made from the point of view of someone who uh has seen the darker sides of his own community and you know thinks it's interesting that it's very different than the image that they actually try to present of themselves and the push and pull of this entire movie then becomes is how gross and how filthy do you think you know people in this community are willing to go do you think that alice could be a killer because as so many people are like alice uh you know, I, I didn't think too much of her, but uh, she likes to make things happen and then call them accidents, yeah. which is uh, w- 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 which is consistent with what we sort of see of Alice in, in her scenes as well. And she also just has like creepy ass dolls. And then there's like a doll <laughs> yeah. mask that's that's killing people. And also the the killer is attacking people that she's annoyed with, like the sequence where <laughs> the killer uh, uh stabs her aunt and there's something so vicious about this scene because he doesn't actually kill the aunt it's so much worse he ba- the the killer takes the knife and drops it like right into her like th- just above her kneecap into her thigh and starts like twisting it around and stuff like that and starts and also stabbing her in the foot and stuff and just watching the ant just scream at the top of her lungs and how again how hysterical and strange the filmmaking gets in moments like this and how heightened and stylized it matches these performances and then also like that's the scene too where she's crawling outside into the rain correct yeah right and then you have that where where the the sister is like holding her while she's bleeding out on the on the just the the front porch i guess and and she's Mm -hmm. screaming and the the rain is just pouring down so it's it's just very emotional very heavy and then they take the uh the sister to the the hospital i believe and what you see afterwards is just a big puddle of blood in the rain. And I just, I love yeah. that whole sequence. It's just, it was so dark and just so like depressing, honestly. Just the heavy rain, the blood flowing, the, the fact that we think that it was probably a 10-year-old that did it at the time. Uh, 
and I and speaking of Alice as well again um, she yeah she really doesn't set up any <laughs> proper alibis we'll say that that's for sure like it, she seems <laughs> very guilty uh, for the first like hour of this film um, and one scene I found kind of like really just just depressing again kind of heart-wrenching was watching the mother lay down in I, it might be her bed or uh, Karen's bed and she's just kind of holding I think one of the jackets and uh, she's just thinking about times that Alice seemed suspicious and there, it was just to watch like a mother kind of have to go through this where she's thinking maybe it was my daughter that killed my other daughter. Uh, there, there's just such a darkness to that and a sadness to that. Um, so that I, that, yeah. that I also found just, just heart wrenching because it's the mother doing it, not just the community, but her, her own mother. Yeah. The movie's like a, almost like a split, like villain origin story, right? Where like all of the shit <laughs> that people project onto Alice arguably makes Alice a future murderer if she's not one already, right? Like all <laughs> right. of the tangential <laughs> abuse she faces, the gaslighting, people kind of implying that she's like sexually potent and full of the potential for sin. Like she's, she's kind of like a, she's got her antennas going and she's picking up all of these things. And there's an implicit like, okay, well, if you think those things about me, then watch what happens right at the end where we get the sign that she's the one who's picked up the knife. She's, she's kind of in a dazed state at the end, but there's a yeah. suggestion. I think that like, what, what else is there for Alice, but to become the things that other people have said that she is. Right. Well, yeah, with with with, with that kind of nurturing, Jesus, <laughs> and, yeah. with, and she seems like so passive a lot of the time. Like you, you said, I think something along the lines of she's like constantly observing, and that's really what it feels like. So by that end, when she has that blank stare, it just feels like she's doing exactly what she's learnt to do. It really is. Um, so that <laughs> that's that's horrifying. Yeah, and I, I I like the point too about the the weird like sexual aspect of it too because obviously we have the landlord tries to molest Alice, but there's also one insane line that uh, in the the hospital setting when the cops are interviewing her, the oh, one cop yeah. says, "Did you notice her tits?" Yeah, uh, just wild. And and it's just yeah, there, there's the, there is this strange thing where like everyone is projecting, you know, this this very as as angelo put it this this sort of like sinful qualities onto her and then saying it's her fault that it's it, this is something that is is inside her when it's very clearly it's like it's inside the community it's inside the people who are feeling these things sort of like in the first place um so this does become like this weird thing of alice is very suspicious but everyone else being as it, almost in a way like almost wants her to be the killer in some ways and wants her to be sinful and, and doesn't, uh, sorry, doesn't Alice also say that, um, that Karen, uh, did like, did some of the killing, uh, killed her aunt or something she, like that, which she, becomes, she's like, convinced it's Karen because it's the outfit that she wore to scare. I see. Karen. Right. Right. Gotcha. Gotcha. I'm just so, wanted to so, clarify and, that. And then there, the, the yeah, and and there, but I mean to be fair, there there is something there in the imagery of that where she thinks that Karen's vengeful spirit is maybe right, back in in some capacity. Which kind of goes into like Catholicism of, and stuff, just that that kind of you know the spirituality and stuff like that. Yeah, and and there, there's lots of talk about sort of you know like I think there's a line something like the the dead have ways and the dead don't rest right. easy and and right. and and other elements like that about you know sort of like how this 
violence has sort of like continued in its own way, but we do find out eventually that it is just one of the psycho Catholic grandmas in the community is actually yeah. uh, the one who is who is dressing up, and we find that out in the scene where I think she poses as being Angela, who is supposed to be, I think, Alice's cousin. I think that's who Angela is supposed to be. By the way, she exactly. she, po- she poses as that and calls uh, Alice's father Dominic and arranges sort of like a, a, a meeting for them. And uh, this is where you get the most sort of like Hitchcock influence. Yeah. Because uh, he basically stages like the um, vertigo tower scene, but inside like an <laughs> abandoned New, New Jersey uh, <laughs> warehouse, warehouse of some yeah. sort. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and then also uh, he straight up steals the psycho music as yeah. Yeah. Um, Dominic is being absolutely just like uh, messed up by this old lady. And, and there's, a, there's a lot of solid lighting and use of shadow and, and, and space in this sort of like confrontation where she ends up, I think she kills him, ends up killing him with a brick, just beating him over the head with a brick. And she's also like and the kind of like personification of the whole community's, you know, issues where she starts like, as she's rolling the body towards the open space so that she can dump it, she's like praying and, and, you know, d- doing all of these very odd, uh, just, prayers and, and th- things of that nature. So God wants you punished. Right, exactly. You are exactly. the snares of the devil. <laughs> exactly, yeah. It's beautiful. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, it's pretty gruesome the way that she sort of, like, ties him up and rolls him out of, of like, the fourth story of, oh, like, yeah. this abandoned building. And, and the, uh, um, the shot of him falling, I thought, was brilliant. Like, using the, using the mirror so that you can see the body yeah. fall off and then have the actor just kind of land next to it. So that you have like an entire visual uh, representation of the fall, so it, it feels like you're seeing somebody fall from beginning to end, uh, and it's it's just yeah, really well yeah, done. Yeah, well, and yeah, it's a very good placement of the mirror because really the shot is the close up of just this garbage covered ground yeah. with like broken glass, and and the mirror is just a broken mirror lying on the ground. But because of that, you get Jamie's right. You get to see the fall, but not only do you get to see the fall, you also get to see her peek over yeah, the edge. It's great. Yeah. yeah, which is so good. There's a real physicality to that whole set piece, which is also there, I think, in the the attempted murder of the ant, right? Which just feels like it feels exhausting to murder someone in this movie, right? Like it's physically <laughs> yes. taxing to do it. You have to really want to do it. It's not just a thing that is done. Yeah, it's brutal. Yeah. Like when they're, for instance, uh, I think a good example of that is when the eventually Alfonso gets uh, stabbed, and um, the stabbing of him is just brutal. Like you see the knife go in his chest, and uh, you know there's and and there's a real sense of like like urgency to the to the killing because he I think he grabs her at the time, and so she just yeah. like starts stabbing away. And it's just so brutal. It's very just quick and brutal, and yeah, yeah. But and, and I and I like this idea too of it being really difficult to uh, actually, you know, or or you know the the impact of actually killing someone being yeah. so gruesome yeah. because it it really does reveal that like you know you really. You know, she she has these feelings of, you know, these people are committing sins and, you know, they need to be punished for their sins in some capacity. But the actual focus on the punishment is what 
Alfred Soule does in in the filmmaking, and he really doesn't let you you know get away from the the, the punishment itself mm-hmm. is so gross and sinful in its own way that it's something that obviously the uh, the killer doesn't really take into account, even though she does sort of quasi feel bad uh, she feels bad enough that she confesses for it she goes she goes to the priest and is like you know forgive me father for i have sinned and he's like you know what whatever it is the father's actually kind of annoyed she seems like she's the lady who comes into confession like, every all the time for, yeah you know, every minor slight that she does and he's like whatever it is it's not as bad as you think <laughs> maybe this time and she's a little like different. Uh... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and 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 there's also a good line that he gets too about um he's like I'm your confessor, but I'm also your friend. And like there, there is an interesting role that that kind of plays in the community that, you know, that you, you, it is someone that obviously you should know on a personal basis, but also there is sort of like this, uh, broader sort of like religious view that you have to take of like your organized community at the same time. Mm -hmm. It's definitely sort of contributing to this idea of community and sort of like, individual relationships within that community. Yeah. And there, there's an interesting thing happening there because obviously this woman is getting right in the middle of that and disrupting that and kind of taking these sort of like these religious doctrines and these religious ideas and then implementing them into these people's personal relationships. Cause we find out really she's killing these people because you know, she thinks that, you know, they, they had a, what did they, they had one of the kids out of wedlock or something mm-hmm. or she, Oh no, so sorry. She divorced the dad. Right. Right. That's what that's what she's upset about. And the movie is pretty serious about this, right? Like legitimacy, birth out of wedlock, divorce are actually like these are real pressing issues for these people. Yes. Yeah, there's no uh, something I like about this movie uh, is that there's no real like irony, at least in the sense of the way he films it or anything like that. Everything is very serious and dark, and you know. I I'm just I'm more used to movies like this where they kind of do maybe the maybe the murder mystery or or they're dealing with over the top religious stuff to be a little bit more ironic. Um, but this one mm. is just very very bleak, very depressing, <laughs> very dark the entire time. Um, and then also speaking on that that the woman, the older woman that ends up doing all the killing when she ends up stabbing the the father. Uh, and we were speaking on how, you know, he also said that she, he was kind of a, he's a friend of the community as well. She gives him like a, like a hug. Like she holds the body as he just kind of like drains out basically. And, uh, mm-hmm. there was this, it, it was like a sense of something like she lost something too, when she had to kill the priest. There was, there was something very, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know, strange and off putting about that. Oh, oh! I th- I thought you were talking about the uh, the sorry the, the the Alice's father, like the actual oh, father. Oh no, sorry, I meant the priest, the reverend, the father at the or, end. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. scene is absolutely insane, and it's especially insane because at that point she has killed obviously many people in the community, but she has killed Alfonso, the landlord, because Alice put cockroaches on him as a prank, and then he runs out into the hall furious about cockroaches all over him, and he sees the yellow raincoat, and he goes, that's Alice. So he he grabs this girl thinking that, you know, he's just, like, messing around with her, thinking that this is, like, the girl who just put cockroaches on him. He's not going to kill her. 
but it turns out that it is actually the woman dressed up in the outfit. She turns around, pulls the knife, stabs him in the chest. Obviously, Jamie talked about how impactful those sort of like stabbings themselves are. Oh, God, but this yeah. is how she gets seen. She gets seen by one of the detectives running out the back door. So at this point, they know who it is. And they let her go to the church. They're like, we are going to capture her at the church. So they're going to use the church and the father and the sort of this, this communion that's happening as... Uh, as bait and the cops say we want to set snipers up in case you know something goes <laughs> fucking crazy yeah. in here and the father's like not in my church because he you know sort of again doesn't believe in uh the kind of violence that's actually taking place in his community and he's just like there's no way that i'm gonna let you you know sort of uh sully my church with guns in it are you kidding me <laughs> yeah and that ends up being a really huge mistake on his part, unfortunately, because when she comes in and she screams that, you know, she, she wants communion, she starts shouting at Catherine for being a whore, and then she stabs Father Tom right in the neck, and, yeah, Jamie was right, holds him as he dies, because, you know, she obviously had such, as she saw it, you know, not just a confessor, a friend, mm-hmm. and, but how brutal that is, and how basically the father, like, basically, like, lets her do that, I don't know 100% that he knew that that was going to happen, but he might as well have just let her do that, uh, which might be the only act of sort of, like, <laughs> real belief <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that that, that kind of, like, takes place uh, in the film. But it's revealed then to everyone that Alice was not the killer. It was this woman. But this strange tracking shot that they do where the hysteria breaks out in the church again and the violence itself is back inside the church in front of everyone's view. No one can look away from the filthinesses of what has just taken place. And Alice walks away with the knife and with the coat and walks away through the crowd in like slow motion as the crowd is like in hysteria. And then she just looks at the camera and the movie ends. (laughs) Yeah. And it's this complete blank stare too, which gives you that kind of, very like we were talking about it earlier, which is just, it's either someone that's pound themselves in a very bad way or she's, she's on her way to doing so. It's, it's, uh, it, it, it definitely doesn't, uh, bring upon anything that's like hopeful, uh, for her character. No. And I, and I, I really like, um, Paula E. E. Shepard in the role who, by the way, is 19 years old playing a 12 year old. She, she does what? a good job. She's 19. Yeah. Yeah, she's 19 Holy in shit. this film. She does not look 19. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. That's wild. Very she's, strange she, performance. Yeah. She's like, yeah. she's kind of stiff at times, but like the stiffness sort of suits the character in that yeah. she's not really able to sort of develop as a person except through these fucked up ideas that other people have about her. But like, yeah, there's a, a real strange like watching someone take their baby steps into being a person <laughs> that happens over the course of the movie with respect to her character. And I find that ending really interesting in that like it's both like I was saying earlier, it's like the serial killer origin story, but also it's like the beginning of her coming of age right now that <laughs> now that like other people's shit is finally out in the open. Maybe Alice can kind of find out who the hell she is and probably it's not good. But it's, it's kind of interesting that the movie sort of lets her sort of start her story at that point, I think, is the suggestion. Yeah, yeah, for sure. 
Well, uh, pivoting towards uh, the reductive rating round, this one get gets a uh, a real solid four for me. I, I really think that for you know, I, I really wish I honestly just got to see Alfred Soul direct some more stuff because he he has a good sense of. Um, visuals in this i mean as someone who was a architect and home designer for a lot of his local community that obviously inspired the look of a lot of the places that he chose i'm pretty sure he just shot in friend's house and like raised the money to make this film like from friends and family basically and obviously you know he he was deeply inside this italian catholic community in new jersey that he was able to depict here as as very ugly and troubling i thought it was also um worth noting that he actually got william lustig to do the gore for this film who obviously famously would go on to direct things like Maniac oh, wow. and Maniac Cop. So uh, very uh, movies with very famous gore in them, we'll say anyway. So th- this was one of the earliest films that he uh, worked on, and he was called in basically just to do the gore for this film because obviously Alfred Soule was not familiar with how to do that kind of stuff. But I think that Soule just did a really good job transpiring the something like the the hysteria and grief that is you feel in something like don't look now into something that's really sort of like lurid and nasty depiction of his own religious community and you know he has a lot of like really effectively troubling use of that those those sort of symbols and images and like there's so much ugly wallpaper and marble (laughs) and statues of christ and and crucifixions and things that just decorate you know like every scene you kind of watch in this and then to sort of translate sort of like the ugliness and the impulses towards violence and suffering that sort of are the undercurrent of so much catholic imagery and sort of the idea of sort of like punishment and sin um and rendering that in just really gruesome bodily harm i think is really really effective um on his part and bringing that into, you know, sort of like the dissolution of family and community and sort of like religious institutions all at the same time. Uh, I gotta say this works really, really well. Um, so credit to soul all the way on that. Uh, yeah, I would, I would also give it a four out of five. Uh, this was, this was great. I, I really did, uh, engage with even the kind of murder mystery aspect of it. Um, even though Mm. by the end it doesn't seem as, focused on that as it initially seems to. Um, I really love the contrast between this kind of pristine, you know, church going community and then the, you know, like the apartments like Alfonso's apartment and things like that. Uh, I really thought the, um, just the, the, the thought of, you know, a community that is rooted in Catholicism um, and kind of teaching kids you know, how to be quote-unquote good, but using guilt and pressure and things like that in order to do so. Uh, it's very accurate. I would know. And being so focused on the idea of sinning, which is why it reminded right, me so of much course. of don't, t- don't Torture a Duckling, because obviously the opposite of, of sinning is obviously the innocence, which they fetishize in these children. So they look at these children, and immediately they go, sex and violence, sex and violence, sex and violence. Yeah. And like that's their idea of, but they view it as we are telling them not to do those things, and they so they won't do those things. Exactly. When really all they are doing is just like making that all that those people see and 
think about. And that's why it reminded me so much of Don't Torture a Duckling, which has basically the exact same thesis and came out kind of like a, I, I think it came out in like 74, so it might be just a little bit before. Um, and also how much soul very clearly, I, I, he says it's unintentional, but oh my God, even the musical cues and the unsettling, eerie, uh, sort of like formal tricks and the reflections and the colors and the style. It's it's so Italian, Giallo. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, so I, I'll give it a four out of five. Uh, this was this was really awesome. Uh, and I don't what what else has Alfred Soul done? Has he done another any other big? Nothing. Oh, so this is really his big movie. Okay. Well, yeah, it's great. I, I'm kind of disappointed to hear that just because I'd like to see some more. But uh, <laughs> this was this was great. Yeah, he. I, I think he had some like very. I. I mean, like I. I'm pretty sure he had that adult film he made before this, and I think he did one other feature in the '80s. But I remember it like I couldn't find them. Okay, so I have no idea. So this was he, the the story he really wanted to tell. So, <laughs> damn, <laughs> that's some darkness right there, brother. <laughs> but for you, Angela, I'd also give it a four. I think. Um, I think like what what amazes me about it is that like it's this rumpled dirty sweaty like tenement brick shithouse set movie that also takes pretty sincerely i think like what its characters feel about this milieu that they find themselves in like it's so thoroughly lived in and thought through there's a conversation at one point where i think alice's mother is saying to her father like haven't i had more than my share of suffering and he says back to her, there's no such thing as a share. Uh, and, and that feels like so suffused in the movie, right? Like it's a movie that's interested in like, do the things that you do result in bad things or good things happening to you? And it really is like earnestly asking those questions. I think at the same time as it's this like borderline grindhousey jalo at the same time, right? Like it's, mm-hmm. it's balancing those instincts quite well, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Well, it's definitely taking these sort of like religious themes very, very seriously on like a on like a character level, yeah. and then infusing them with just so much psycho Catholic energy. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is a is is a good fusion. It's a good way of uh, accessing those feelings. I feel like yeah. does it successfully. Uh, but I think that'll wrap it up for Alice, sweet Alice. We are going to be right back, and we are going to be talking about Basket Case. What's in the basket? Clothes. What's in the basket? Nothing. What's in the basket? My brother. What's in the basket? Open it, if you dare. Basket case. All right, we are back and we are talking Basket Case, the 1982 American horror film written and directed by Frank Henenlotter. It's also the, uh, I believe it's his directorial debut, and a lot of you might know him as he's well known in, in trash circles uh, for this film, as well as um, Brain Damage, which came out in 1988. He, he really likes films about small things attached to you, whispering <laughs> in your ear and, and stuff like that. Brain Damage is insane if you haven't seen it. I have And then actually. also uh, Frankenhooker, which is exactly... Awesome exactly what the title says it is <laughs> love it um, i gotta check those but, out but <laughs> uh 
but uh, Basket Case kind of has a, a bit of a uh, notorious premise, and that is because it is about a young man from um, upstate uh, New York named Dwayne who comes to the big city, to Times Square, to uh, locate some doctors who might have separated him and his conjoined brother um, against their will, and they seek revenge against that. But the twist is that uh, his conjoined brother is basically a demented little meatball that screams and kills <laughs> people. Um, and it's not really uh, conjoined brothers in the way or siblings in the way that I guess you would think of, you know, sort of like two people attached at the hip. This is just like a tiny little monstrous head with two little arms, and uh, is, its name is Bilal? Oh, is that what? Okay. <laughs> I think. <laughs> and, 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 and all he does is scream at the top of his lungs and murder things. And eat a lot uh, of hamburgers. He, he eats a, a lot, lot of, of hamburgers, and he carries, <laughs> he carries them around in like, a, uh, in like a wicker basket. And yeah, basically they are just out stro- uh, strolling the uh, New York gutters looking for the people who separated them against their will and sort of like dehumanize them. And the thing that is surprising as we'll get into it, obviously is that similar to Alice, sweet Alice, it's like, it has some ridiculous elements, but it takes them very, very seriously and very emotionally seriously. Yeah. Like, Um, like you you have shots of, uh, and we'll get to the context, but like you have shots eventually of the, uh, the brother, the the meatball brother. I don't. What's his name again? <laughs> Blal. <laughs> I, th- I, I Blal. think it's Blal. Okay, I'll just say Blal. We'll just go with that. Uh, and uh, like shots of him just like overlooking the city in a on, on a windowsill and just screaming out in pure emotion and things like that. Like it, it's it's so strange and and at times should be silly, but you're right. Like it's constantly taking itself seriously, which I purely admire. I fuck it. I think it really makes the movie work. Uh, in a way that um, I thought was going to be much more ironic, and instead I was oddly invested in the brother rela- relationship. So yeah, it was pretty wild. Yeah, there's a tenderness in the relationship, right? Like there's yeah. that very odd but like kind of sweet moment where Dwayne is helping Bilal off the toilet, right? And there's a suggestion <laughs> that like he's they're caregivers and they're symbiotically attached. And, like, the movie is, like, weirdly invested in this is a real, concrete, physical thing. And, like, it's interested in the way that they communicate. Like, on some level, it's obviously a joke, right? Like, it kind of plays, like, Han Solo talking to Chewbacca. And, like, obviously they understand each other. Like, similarly here, you have moments where Dwayne is talking to him. And, like, uh, his performance is a, a a little stiff, let's say. But he's, like, speaking, and the assumption is that, that Bilal is talking in his ear without us actually hearing him. But it's right. also, like, actually invested in what that might be like to have this kind of communication that goes beyond words that, like, is always present. It, it like, actually is interested in the existential state of being attached to someone in this way that other people can't see, but that mm-hmm. you know is present all the time. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Well, and, and too... 
this coming out in 1982 is so interesting because it feels of a piece with like the style of sort of like the New York City gutter trash guerrilla filmmaking of like, you know, someone like a Larry Cohen, like It's Alive. I, yeah. I thought of It's Alive watching this a little bit. Um, also a little bit of Abel Ferreira, the driller killer. Yeah, for sure. Um, William Lustig a little bit as well. Speaking of Lustig, who just worked on the last film, it has that really scuzzy, grimy, filthy uh, aspect to it and and you can tell that um Hennen Lauder he really likes sort of like the sex and violence and the little monsters that are sort of like a, like like a, a t- attached to you cuz same with like brain damage which was i think in that because this one has sort of like obviously a sibling melodrama aspect to it who are on this revenge mission um brain damage i believe was an addiction allegory okay. which turned into like a creature feature and he takes like this experimental drug that then grows his brain into like this like additional brain that hangs out outside of his body and he talks <laughs> like this Hi. <laughs> and like that's the voice that he does as he like tells the guy that he's got to take him out to like kill people but like the ways that he it's, it's basically like the original uh venom yeah yeah it has its own voice and personality <laughs> like it's like attached to him and i think in that movie the the most shocking violence is the uh one where it poses as a as a penis so the girl goes to like give one of the characters like a blowjob basically and the little brain basically just pops out the back of her head <laughs> Um, and, and, and sucks her brains out. So that's fun. And cause he, he, he loves mixing like that, that really like trash exploitation element into it. He was, he was on the record saying that everyone said that he made horror films and he liked to clarify that he's like, I make exploitation films because exploitation <laughs> films, unlike, you know, like horror films can be Hollywood productions. And he was like, exploitation films have, you know, sort of like this gorilla attitude. They're yeah. ruder, they're raunchier. They like, deal with material that people are kind of like afraid to touch on. And he says they're very sex, drugs, and rock and roll is how he views exploitation filmmaking. And he grew up, it's worth noting, um, watching a lot of 60s and 70s sexploitation films, basically like in New York City on 42nd Street. Um, so that was why when, you know, he came up, it, it made sense that, you know, in 1982, this kind of movie honestly was like a little dated. Um, so it's, it's interesting, you know, that he was basically, he just loved that seediness style to it, which makes it perfect for this show. Obviously, this is one of the films that was actually, uh, covered in, um, Sleazoids Express, obviously the, what we've named our show after. Um, where they they did a whole bunch of issues of all of the films that played sort of like the New York City sleaze and exploitation scene. And this was like one of the big hits. This is kind of seen as a little bit of like the the father of like the splatter film <laughs> a oh, little okay. bit. That's pretty sweet. <laughs> so yeah, and but, but then to mix that, to basically be coming up with like this very rude and gross and as he put it, like raunchy splatter film about, you know, what what is like this little monster killing doctors because the doctors separated him from his own brother against his will and those scenes are really gruesome when he kills those doctors but then to sort of like flip that on its head and to actually end up turning this into what is a combination of you know a grimy no budget splatter movie and then like this like 
melodrama about the two brothers and yeah. how sort of like dehumanized they were. And when we start getting flashbacks of like the father who, you know, they, the, the mother died giving birth to them. So he sees them as nothing but little monsters. And he basically is like, why don't we just like kill them already? And then they were like, well, we can separate the one because the one's a little monster and the other one could have a normal life. Not realizing that, you know, they actually do have a very emotional connection to each other. And I was really surprised to find out how emotionally invested it was in the humanity of the giant shrieking meatball monster. Absolutely. That kills yeah. It's also, <laughs> like, very strange that, you know, like you were saying, uh, surprisingly enough, you know, they have an emotional connection. It's, it's so cruel, too, because they wait until he's, like, 16 years old before they separate them by force. <laughs> you know, it's like they get, like... He could have just, they could have done it when they were born, I assume, uh, but they, they did this, like, they, they waited for so long, and it just, I don't know, there's, like, an added uh, disgusting factor to that, that that, they're, that they waited for their a connection to develop before they decided mm-hmm. to separate them by force. Well, and, well. and the scene when they do it, the actual separation is so gross. Like oh, when they're, yeah. like, cutting, you know, like, this little, this what looks like a giant tumor basically like sitting out of his abdomen but the tumor just has a face and hands yeah yeah it's just like <laughs> screaming at his side it's oh my god <laughs> such an image we yeah. talk about the screaming the screaming itself is interesting it's to me best. like how much screaming there is in this movie uh, and, but i think yeah. about that with like the your larry cohen connection is apt i think right like there's certainly a scuzziness and a griminess that is also true of cohen but like like cohen there's also uh, a refusal to be glib about the ideas that are important to the characters, right? So, like, here, it's actually interest. Like, the same way that It's Alive is interested in, like, how do people talk about disabled children as, like, failures of their parents, as, like, a sign of mm. things gone wrong, as, like, a sign of environmental catastrophe and all these things, right? Like, this movie is also interested in the way that people kind of implicitly sort of treat... Uh, the disabled twin here as being like not a person. I think Belal actually means worthless. So there's there's oh. like something there's something in that that's interesting. And like the staging of that scene, like you said, the the father talking about the monstrous kids who killed the mother. Like it almost looks like it's from a Terrence Davies movie. Like the whole family is gathered around, and like there's this weird frontal perspective of them as they're having this big family meeting. Yeah. But, like, I, I love that it's it's so interested in, like, the actual emotions that these people are going through, which are represented throughout in that, like, guttural screaming sound that Bella was making. <laughs> was, like, yeah. the, the existential terror of being alive and not valued and treated like meat, basically. I also like, yeah. like, the his focus on the surgery itself. is It's actually, like, disgusting. They have... So many just sound effects of like bones cracking as they're sawing them apart and the blood is splattering everywhere on the doctors and on the equipment and and like there there's a real uh it does truly feel like there's a real physical loss for the for both of them really uh and it makes you sit through the entire thing like the entire surgery instead of just you know kind of implying that yep they were separated it shows every little detail. Oh, yeah, they, they, they want you to know that these are New York's filthiest medical professionals. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, and, and it's funny, too, because obviously they it, he, he really uses his limited budget to 
capture things like that as well because mm-hmm. not only are the you know are these doctors willing to work after hours and do a private surgery that they uh, to be fair to them I guess they do it successfully yeah and they <laughs> end up not even killing Bilal somehow um, but the doctor's offices and stuff like all the location work in this is just like New York City guerrilla filming locations that mm-hmm. they could get so yeah. like basically most of the movie takes place in a motel that basically looks like where they did the uh, shootout drug and sex haven and at the end of Taxi Driver <laughs> yeah for sure <laughs> and, then, and then even the doctor's offices are like clearly made out of like abandoned buildings oh yeah there's like, like pipes in the background and they're all rusted and stuff <laughs> like no, yeah every yeah, single really place, gross textures everywhere yeah every single place they go into in this movie looks completely grimy like there's no real contrast like we have in uh alice sweet alice it's it this one is just completely filthy and and just very small spaces the entire time well i i think it's worth noting that this this is almost entirely because this is a budgetary constraint because oh, I absolutely think it just it ends if, up working if, if, really if, well. if the number yeah it does because yeah. like obviously you would think that you know you would be able to maybe get access to a doctor's office and be able to shoot in it for part of a day instead they're like now nah, let's just make this like abandoned building look like a yeah like a like a doctor's office and we'll make this like this this office that he actually has is just not even an office it's terrible yeah, it just and feels so like the, whole the city's decaying yeah it's all like stained wallpaper right. and like chipped wood and new york is just like this seedy cesspool yeah, basically exactly which to be fair it is kind of what new york looked like in general in the night in the late 70s and early 80s as is yeah but there's this really interesting sort of thing that derives from that because again this is another thing that's interested in sort of getting in the filth or getting into the filth of you know this particular emotional situation and unlike Alice Sweet Alice like there is none of there's not even an attempt to cover it up (laughs) yeah (laughs) even the doctors are just so fucking disgusting and when Bilal gets his hand on them they're even worse he just makes (laughs) them look uh, basically like their surroundings and some of the kills dude like when he just like and some of it's pretty funny because again the the, the limitations in their own way are um, sort of charming but yeah. like Bilal is just like this meatball that just like grabs onto a dude's face and starts like shredding people's faces uh, yeah. there's one doctor that he shoves all of her medical instruments like into her face and she's looking at the camera and screaming with like five knives like sticking out of her face the, uh... and the gore is actually impressive considering again I think that they only had like a $30,000 budget for this film and from what I understand there was four crew members Okay. So there was the cast, wow. and there was four people behind the camera. And you assume it was the per- the director, the person holding the camera, the probably the person uh, doing some sort of sound, yeah. and probably someone doing some light and some grip work. That's basically it. That's wild. I also I I love the uh, the um, the one kill that when they kill the father, or at least uh, Lull kills the father. Uh, he has that yes. like wagon death trap set up and it just like <laughs> yes. with a huge saw too. Like, I don't even know how he would set it it's up. It's got a saw, it's got a machete sticking in it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah like, like the brother had to have helped him with that. Cause I don't know how that, that meatball monster set it up like that, but this giant chain, 
uh, this giant like buzzsaw is just going and the wagon just gets loose and then cuts him completely in half, which I do like the kind of like the irony in that where he where he cuts his dad in half like they split yeah. them apart. Like that's just that's just hilarious. Well, and, 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 and the shot, too, of both legs just falling in either direction. <laughs> oh, they don't actually yeah. show you the full split in half, but they take yeah. two fake legs and cover them in blood and just have them fall either direction. So yeah. the brain kind of does the rest it's of the work. Great. And then another visual I love with the uh, with the brother is w- I can't remember who it was um, who comes in, but someone walks into their room and he's just like attached to the wall somehow and then like jumps onto him. And it's just such a such an odd image um, it, because it's it's I just don't know how physically he does that, but apparently he's capable of it. <laughs> But it just gives the, the, like a the strangeness. Physical, physical logistics of Bilal are definitely a mystery, <laughs> even, even by the end of the film. Absolutely, but it, but it is it is really hilarious because there are and 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 sad ultimately too at a certain point because there are moments where like you know there's there's a subplot where Dwayne who is obviously just this this sort of like rural kid from upstate New York and he he goes into the big city and he's kind of hanging out in like the dive motels and the dive bars and what's kind of sweet is that everyone kind of like welcomes him in a little bit they're yeah. like you know welcome to to our uh, small little community and he starts having like a good time he's going out for drinks he even meets a girl uh, the, one of the secretaries for one of the doctors that they kill <laughs> <laughs> yep. and uh, he, he starts like sparking up like a really sweet relationship with them and there's a bit where you know she's talking about taking him on all the tours of New York and taking him to Radio City and the World Trade Center and she was going to be like a tour guide for him. And they, you know, it's the only images during the day where he goes out with her that, you know, it's like they're, they're bright and they're hanging yeah, out. There's on the a bit water of relief, and, you know, <laughs> there, there, there's something different happening there. And yeah. Bilal, obviously because of, you know, what's been done to him, there's really no option. He's on a single minded mission to just fucking kill these doctors. And all he has is his brother and this girl threatens that. And he thinks that he is actually losing his brother. And they, because they have some sort of psychic connection as he's like kissing, you know, sort of like the secretary, there is this scene where Bilal just starts flipping out. He gets himself out of his basket. He just starts like throwing shit and screaming. And it's And there's just sweet. this very primal yeah. rage and him just like throwing lamps around the room. And everyone in the motel is like, okay, who is screaming and breaking shit right and I, now? And, <laughs> and I really do like the way that they, that they filmed it. Cause they use kind of like a lot of close-ups of him kind of just kind of sporadically yelling and, and kind of spazzing out. And then they also use, I think it's claymation to have him like physically get oh, out it, of the it, drawer. It, it's just us. It, it's just stop motion. Oh, stop motion. Okay. Uh, but it's, uh, it's, it's just very effective. And it, it was, it was an interesting scene to see. Cause I didn't know how they were going to make him destroy an entire room, you know, using this, this, this <laughs> character design. So, uh, yeah, I th- I was genuinely impressed. And, uh, especially for such a, a low budget, he pulls off a lot of, of, odd physical character moves that I didn't think he'd be able to do with the amount of money he must have had. Pretty impressive. There's that great there's that great sight gag where Dwayne is finally going to have his first sexual experience and she says, I think take me Dwayne as Bilal announces himself and pops out of the wicker basket, <laughs> uh, <laughs> revealing himself in all his anger. But there's something interesting there too, right? Like it's it's goofy and it's a sight gag and it kinda works as like a grotesque sight gag like there's obviously something kind of phallic going on with the way he's popping out of the box as it were but (laughs) it's also like actually kind of saying something tentative about passing like Dwayne is also a freak right Dwayne was also part of that 
that family meeting about whether he should live or not, but like he's able to pass as just a normal rural kid, whereas Bilal right. is like all meatball, right? Bilal is not able to pass, <laughs> and he's pissed about it. And the movie is actually interested in like what would it be like to be unable to communicate except in this guttural form and to have to be like carried around but to also have intense feelings and emotions and like obviously right. it's goofy right but like it's it's taking it quite seriously and quite straightforwardly yeah. well yeah and it, well i mean it, it gets incredibly horrifying when um he start like Bilal obviously is, is upset that Dwayne, you know, he might be losing Dwayne to this woman. So he basically decides that he's going to go kill the woman and also that he's going to try and have sex with her because he's just like, if Dwayne is getting this thing, I should be getting this thing. And that image of her dead and, and Bilal basically oh looking like he's trying to like rape her on yeah. top of her is insane. It's bizarre. Insane. Yeah. <laughs> Never seen anything quite like that. I will say it's, uh, and, and, and yeah. it sucks too, though, in a way. Cause like, obviously there's, there's, there's murder and, and all this stuff, but it's mostly towards the, the doctors that did all this horrible stuff. And in that scene, mm. it's like completely unforgivable, which, which is a, it's yeah. a bit of a bummer for Bilal or once again, I keep, See, feeling yeah. like I'm not saying his name right, but whatever. No, no, you're saying you're saying exactly right. <laughs> Killing it, exactly Killing right. It. Uh, but that, yeah, that was a bit of a really sad well, no, and, scene and, for and, me. and that's where Dwayne gets completely disillusioned, right? Yeah, because it's like yeah. their their single minded mission to sort of like you know hurt the people that have hurt them has extended beyond that mission. Exactly. At this point. Cause he even mentions, he says something like she was, she was one of the pure ones. She was a good one. Why do you always, you know, like, why do you do this to me? Why won't you let me just kind of love basically? Uh, so the, it becomes this thing where it's it, before it was the brothers on this adventure and journey to get revenge. And there was like a togetherness for them. And now that there's this this separation, we it's revealed how much the the uh, uh, the normal brother is is kind of also resenting his 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 mm-hmm. conjoined brother, which is there's a real sadness mm-hmm. there. Yeah. Well, yeah, because I mean, especially leading up to that scene where he kills uh, Dwayne's, you know, um, hopeful girlfriend at that point. I, I believe the first part of that scene is Bilal imagining himself as Dwayne, right? Or in Dwayne's yeah. body. Mm-hmm. He's imagining himself if he was the one who, you know, was able to, as Angelo put it, to pass. He was the one who was able to have the normal physicality. Right. And so so technically, when he goes there, he goes there with sort of, I guess you could say, pure intentions of like, I'm going to win the girl over. I'm going to. And like, that's that's kind of Bilal's idea. And right. then obviously when, when she wakes up and Bilal is just a meatball laying on top of her, <laughs> she's freaked out. And that's when he strangles her and kills her. And that's when Dwayne walks in. And yeah, obviously that really strains Dwayne and Bilal's relationship, or I guess it fundamentally breaks it at that point. There's kind of a little bit strained before. And we just get this really, really bleak ending basically where like, uh, Bilal is, uh, like, is, is it, who, who's the person who gets lifted up by the dick? That's the, that's the other <laughs> it's brother. Dwayne, that's, I think. Yeah. yeah. That's Dwayne. Yeah. yeah. Dwayne gets lifted by the dick. <laughs> yeah. A firm and hold. he gets like, yeah. <laughs> firm hold. <laughs> he gets like thrown out 
the window and that shot too it's it's really good on how little money that they had but that shot of them like holding on to the hotel sign yeah of Bilal holding Dwayne them both hanging basically outside the window about to fall to their death and basically like it's out out of like a like like a Hitchcock movie when they're hanging off like a rooftop chase scene or something like yeah, that. Yeah, one of my favorite. And, this is just a little side thing, but one of my favorite moments is when they're hanging uh, from the neon sign or whatever, and there's this dude in the background. It's just audio, but he says like, "Are you okay, man?" And it's just like, <laughs> obviously not, dude. <laughs> like this is a bad day for Dwayne, brother. Come on. <laughs> it was just. It was very funny to me. I had to point it out. <laughs> no, yeah, there's there, there's all kinds of good little uh, jokes in here too. One of one of my personal favorite was when um, <laughs> after they kill the dad, the um, the the lady in the house like decides to like take care of them and actually like take care of Bilal. Oh, and yeah. that image of her reading them stories by the fireplace and Bilal just curled up in her arms <laughs> as she's like looking at him and smiling and reading him a bedtime story. Yeah. Beautiful. I could have had honestly like five more minutes of them and just sweet. actually being taken care of. That would have been incredible. Yeah. It's a great little, little moment. And yeah. It's Cause like, there, there's, it's a gag, but it's sweet at the same time, right? Like it actually yes. works as a sweet moment. And like, Absolutely. as like a, a protected little alternate world for these characters, right? Like, this is the way their lives might have gone had they not found themselves in uh, a splatter movie. But yeah. there's something about the ending that's a bit disappointing, I think. Like, the way it, the way we've been talking about, like, it, it turns into a pretty generic monster movie about deformity and disability. Like, it feels like there's a, a narrative track it has to get back onto. I'm thinking about this because I'm, I'm giving a talk on Splice later, which is in my mind sort of yes. occupies a similar space where there's a monster that's like grotesque, but also like you're protective toward it and you sympathize with the monster where like mm-hmm. you're invited in these movies to kind of marvel at the form of the monster. And like in this case, the form is obviously junky and kind of crummy looking, but also like impressively tactile. But, like, the movie can't sustain them for very long, right? Like, the monster has to die at some point. We can't just have monsters in the world potentially sexually assaulting women, right? Like, the movie has to find a way (laughs) in those last ten minutes to really tell us that, like, Bilal is not long for this world. And it almost feels Mm -hmm. like, you know, I'd I'd prefer a version of this movie that ends with Bilal uh, and and Dwayne having story time. (laughs) Like, they're being read (laughs) to and taking care of. A little bit of a more hopeful ending for them. Yeah. Well, and and I, from what I understand, they made a sequel and a third one. Yeah, directed by the same guy, which is wild. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm, so I'm very curious how they continued this with Bilal. Although the fact, because you, you are right, they they eventually do have to kill Bilal because this needs to be a quote unquote monster movie or a creature feature at a certain point. But one also, thing I will say that I liked about that was that Bilal doesn't die also without Dwayne. Yeah, they, yeah. they do have, they both die and they both fall on the, on the street. And there is something, uh, you know, gruesomely poetic about both of them on the New York City filthy street, both just like bleeding out, splattered on the street a little bit. Yeah. Um, I after after you know what they came there to do. I think as as much as I do understand kind of the route they went with like you know Bilal's jealousy and and things of of that nature, I do think it probably would have been a little bit better just for their character moments to have more so like once the community. Uh, uh, once Bilal is revealed to the community, that's what pushes them towards their death rather than like their mm. uh, their own kind of shit because it feels to me like the movie throughout is 
kind of saying that. Like it's similar to like Alice Sweet Alice, where it's like the community is the one that gets to say who is right to live and who isn't and who belongs in the society and whatnot. Yeah. Uh, and instead it turns into well, like he's the bad guy in a way. And and I so I get I kind of right, get what yeah. you're saying. I, I think the community being the the evil would have been a little bit better. Um that being said, it's yeah, still well, works. And, and, and also, too, I'm surprised they didn't try to find in some way because there is a cool little, as I mentioned, there's a part with Dwayne where he sort of gets welcomed into, like, the underground New York City yeah. weirdo community despite mm. clearly not fitting in. There, 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 there could have been a nice little development where they had Bilal actually... You know, like they 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 invite him in as well. I'm imagining a version where Bilal's just like drinking beer with everyone. Yes, yeah, dude. I want the, them to at, like at, start at, a jazz at the grimy band. watering house. Oh, yeah. like, like Bilal's on the piano, just ripping it. <laughs> but uh, I, and then at the end too, it, it kind of gave me this. There, there is like a real sadness because obviously you're watching these two brothers and now they're dead. And it it reminded me of kind of like the scene. Um, I think it's about halfway through where. Uh, someone is either killed or Bilal has to do some hiding and and Dwayne thinks that he's about to get caught. And there's this great shot where he's kind of looking for uh, Bilal and in the background, the toilet seat lifts up and then his hand just comes <laughs> out of it and it's very slow and kind of sad, like, are you mad at me kind of thing. And then, yeah. he, then he comforts him and, and just having that scene and then ha- knowing where it ends. Scenes. Yeah, it's great. And having that scene and then knowing where it ends, there is a real sadness to that. Uh, and I just found myself shocked that I cared this much by the, by the end of this movie about a, that, about a that image freak of and his brother. <laughs> that, that image of Bilal just sitting on the toilet. Yeah, <laughs> which is which, 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 which is just an awesome sight gag in general. Yeah, but then to have Dwayne just sit down and have a real heart to heart with him, and yeah. he's basically yeah. like, "Yeah, I I understand why you were upset, and you know, I know that we gotta sort of stick together, but know that I'm here for you." And and and, and, and yeah, and and Dwayne's also kind of expressing a little bit of um, you know, uh, his own pushback at his brother about being, you know, like, you know, I think you're getting a little too crazy about, you know, just the mission to murder. <laughs> I think you're getting we a little murder. We could live our lives bro. too. Yeah. Um, but that, but that, that's, and that's basically, and then, but what's interesting is he's obviously coming at that from the pace, the place of, I can do that. And you can't. Yeah. Bilal sure. doesn't have that ability. And there is something sad that it addresses in that film too. But anyway, just watching these two have a real genuine emotional conversation that two brothers would have. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in, in in a given situation, and that the movie you know has the space to take that seriously, because again, a thirty thousand dollars splatter film that he intends to run the grindhouse circuit in New York, you don't have to do that. No, you don't. You just he's just like it, it's just the meatball that kills people. But yeah, you could have given me that. All of these ways to elongate these scenes to to actually care about this stuff, and that that was what if we're pivoting towards a reductive rating round, like really yeah. ended up working for me about this and getting this one to the solid four for as well as for me. I, I kind of sat with it for the night. Cause I, when I immediately finished watching it, I was like, I was a little kind of in the middle. I was a little stuck on it. Yeah. But the next day when I was thinking about it, man, I, I did feel, end up feeling this movie, which I think is just such an impressive, <laughs> Absolutely. because of what kind of movie it is mm. in general that I had just have to give, um, you know, I have to give Frank credit on, on, on that and I do think that the fact that this goes from gross grimy no budget splatter movie of two brothers out for revenge on a bunch of doctors and that it does become like a really bleak and sad 
melodrama um in but just somehow in the style of like the new york city gutter trash filmmaking of the 70s which we've talked about many times on the show and we really really love um so the fact that it's all of those things and somehow emotional and kind of humane even though you know there might be a little bit of gestures near the end of the film that they could have been a little bit kinder to yeah. Bilal because they, they they do kind of character assassinate him in those last five minutes <laughs> yeah <laughs> kind of makes it hard <laughs> to get on his side <laughs> You know, you're 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 you're, you're, you're kind of with him until the strangle and attempted rape. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but but I I do think that you know still the final sequence ends up working and the final shot of the film does end up working and you are left with this feeling of sadness and humanity of this giant shrieking meatball monster named Bilal who literally the only line he has in this film is ah! <laughs> yeah just a. Uh, <laughs> incredibly emotional scream oh my god yeah i'm also uh gonna give it the four uh this is this just feels like one of those movies that's so unique um that i that i have to respect it even on on those grounds but then he is somehow able to you know make a meatball monster uh sympathetic and and it's i loved the 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 difference, uh, the, like the contrast of like what I was saying with that that toilet scene, and then ending with such such tragedy. There's a real sadness to that, and I was expecting just a pure vengeance kind of revenge movie with a basket monster, uh, and instead you you kind of do really get this this odd melodrama that I I can say I've never seen anything like it before. So. Um, yeah, uh, this is a four out of five. I'm definitely going to check out the sequels because I'm very curious as to how he would make more of these after the after the ending we got. Maybe I don't know. Maybe it's a prequel. I have I have no idea. Um, but mm-hmm. I'm very well, interested. And, and, and you definitely have to check out Brain Damage because Brain Damage I think was the main movie where he got like a legit budget. Okay. So like the 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 little slimy creepy brain that keeps like popping out of this dude's like uh, back and stuff like that and killing people really really impressive like visual effect just in general and also he just like upped the gag aspect to it because again the voice instead of just yelling his voice is like how are you doing (laughs) that's just such a good choice that's the yeah that that's the voice of the character who is attached to him and again he instead of doing a melodrama he does sort of like uh, an addiction allegory uh, for it, but it's still just as grimy and on the streets and stuff like that as well. So awesome, yeah, and and also I just love this guy's uh, like the the grimy and uh, just really gross style to this movie. I mean, everything looks so just old and and such as once again very small spaces and and even the doctor's office has like pipes and rust everywhere and it's just you know it's it's just never ending uh, in that regard. Um, and they even have some like really odd gorilla shots like. I think there's a sequence where he's dreaming and he's running throughout the New York streets at mm. night naked. And, uh, and, and <laughs> yeah. it's just like full frontal bush right there. So, I mean, he goes off. Well, no, because that, that, that's, that's the one, that's the one where Bilal thinks that he's his brother. Going oh, girl, I see. Right? I see. Because, because Bilal's not imagining himself in clothes, which I think is a genius fucking gag. Right, 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 right. <laughs> because, because, because Bilal's never wearing clothes. Bilal's always naked. So he imagines himself in his brother's body naked. <laughs> that's so, so good. So it's just, that's, that's that's so good and yeah all the the times square period stuff 
Um, or I guess it's not it's not period stuff. It's 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 street stuff. They literally just filmed it there. Yeah. But Times Square was just so seedy, dude. Like all the porn houses and the dudes walking on the street being like, "Yo, you want Columbia smoke? You want cocaine? You oh want yeah. Quaaludes, you want angel dust? You want tranquilizers? I, for- I got girls." I forgot to mention <laughs> I love that, that, that panhandler. Yeah, that drug yeah. dealer scene is so funny because he just starts lifting off things that I've never even heard of. I was like, damn, man, you got a list. You got an inventory right <laughs> And then there. once he realizes, once he knows it's not a sale, he's like, fuck you. <laughs> yeah, yeah he's, he's like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Yeah. <laughs> to this, like, dork carrying a twill basket. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're telling me you don't want prostitutes and cocaine? Come on now. Uh, but yeah, it's a uh, four out of five for me. This was this was a wild ride, uh, and I, I I loved it honestly. So yeah, oh yeah, for you, Angela. I'm gonna go with a four too. I think it works. It works really well, as we've been saying, as this exemplar of gutter trash. Uh, <laughs> but it also works as like physical horror at times. Like I'm thinking of the really strange moment where we're seeing Bilal like ma- manhandling the TV and just like breaking the knob off while we're gripping it. <laughs> yeah. But it also works, like, <laughs> equally well, I think, as that sibling melodrama that's, like, actually about things. Like, it's about care. Yeah. It's also yeah. about resenting the person that you're caring for and, like, feeling resented and, like, loving someone and hating them at the same time. Like, I think it's it's reasonably complex considering, as we've said, Bilal has exactly one line in the movie that he feels like <laughs> a relatively fleshed-out character, uh, not to pun on flesh. So I- I'm gonna give it I'm going to give it a four as well. Awesome. Nice. Well, I think that'll wrap it up for this week. That was Alice Sweet Alice 1976 and Basket Case 1982. Thanks, Angelo, so much for uh, joining us this week and bringing yeah, these those films great. with you. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Um, uh, this is usually the part of the show where if you've got anything to plug, we let you do that. So what are you doing, Angela? What's going on? Uh, I'm in the current issue of CinemaScope with a piece on Tenet, which I... I braved. Oh, do you know what? I just got that <laughs> delivered, like, the other day. Oh, it's in there. I, I, I haven't even cracked it open yet. I'm going to have to go do that now. All Fake will be fan. revealed. Fake fan over here. <laughs> I will finally get to the bottom of time puzzle books. So I'm, I'm nice. in that. And I, I also host a monthly lecture series for real abilities called Disability on Film. So I'm currently actually doing a horror miniseries. And, nice. Uh, Are you doing Basket Case? I'm not doing Basket Case, but I thought about it. It was a very close contender. <laughs> I did Silver Bullet last month, and I'm doing Splice uh, tonight, actually. So lots Ooh, of nice. lots of stuff to say about monster movies and eugenics and hideous progeny and so on and so forth. And then I think probably in November I'm going to focus on thrillers uh, as opposed to horror movies proper. So I might actually look at The Tribe. So that's that's something to watch for. Otherwise, okay, I'm well, just well, well, well. Good note about Splice because the I, I remember watching that movie and thinking of it as the movie that Adrian Brody has sex with his lab created <laughs> like amphibious animal daughter, and I think Accurate. I saw that when I was like fifteen, and it freaked me out. Wild, and, pretty uh, wild. And I, I, I don't think that I've watched it since, and I, re- I should give it another shot. It, uh, it holds up. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely wild. It kind of like Basket Case, the last 30 minutes really just like go in all of the directions that you think. You're like, I don't know if this movie is going to go there. And then you're like, oh, yeah, it's, it's actually, it's actually filling, it's uh, filling out. It's, yeah, it's, it's fulfilling its potential <laughs> in all of the wildest ways. Absolutely. Nice. 
Well, for our listeners, we are going to be back. Um, obviously, as I mentioned, for $10 patrons next week, um, we are going to be uh, doing our um, virtual screening exclusive for those patrons. The link is going to go out on October 28th. So anyone who signs up to $10 before October 28th, we're going to be watching Lucia Fulci's The New York Ripper. And you can watch Jamie react live <laughs> to a Fulci movie, which I'm sure is going to be really fun and to some oh, of the yeah. stuff that happens in that Fulci movie in particular. I yell a lot during because I've seen it. Jamie so. hasn't. We're gonna have a good time. Yeah, it's gonna uh, be fun. But uh, for next week's episode, we have a big one. It's gonna go up on Halloween Day, and uh, we are going to be doing a sequel episode to one of our bigger episodes from 2018, where we did Halloween one, two, and three. So we are gonna be following that up, and we are gonna be continuing the Halloween franchise, and we're gonna be talking about four. The Return of Michael Myers, five, The Revenge of Michael Myers, and six, The Curse of Michael Myers. <laughs> starring Paul Rudd. <laughs> Oddly enough. Starring and introducing That's right. Paul Rudd. That's right. His very first movie. Unreal. So we're going to be talking about um, all three uh, sort of like sequels to the immediate trilogy in Halloween. And there's some pretty insane stuff to talk about in there. So yeah. If you want that episode again, patreon.com slash Thesewades podcast. That's going to be next week's bonus episode. And then the week after Spooktober will be done. Cause that'll be the last episode of Spooktober. We figured we'd end with a big triple feature. Um, we're going to be moving into November. And usually in November, we try to stick a little bit to a little bit of noir November stuff. We try to stick to the realm of like crime movies and stuff. Yeah. So we are going to be back with a special guest and we are going to be talking about Ringo Lamb's City on Fire starring Chow Yun-Fat. Awesome. And then we are we are also going to be talking about um I believe it's Bill Duke's Deep Cover from 1992 starring uh lawrence fishburne and jeff goldblum awesome that'll be fun so i have somehow never seen either of these movies so when the guest pitched them i was like i was like okay i'm gonna i'm i'm excited these have been on my watch list for like five years so i should eventually get them off there so that's gonna start us off into our month of sort of like crime movies and and such excellent but that being said that's what you can expect for over the next two weeks there um, that'll wrap it up for everything this week. Thanks so much for listening and keep it sleazy. Keep it sleazy.